0: From this episode,
1: lightning, believe it or not, is the least threatening characteristics of a thunderstorm because lightning generally strikes the airplane, it enters the airplane, and then exits the airplane without leaving damage. Sometimes, yes, uh, there might be a small little pinholes left, but when if we are hit by lightning, uh, maintenance will go over the airplane with a fine tooth comb and uh, give it us a, a green card of health.
0: This is Flying Smarter, the podcast that explores the fascinating world of air travel to help you become a smarter and savvier traveler. While flying can be stressful and frustrating, the world of commercial aviation is also incredibly intriguing. Flying Smarter delves into the miraculous and often misunderstood realm of air travel by sharing stories and experiences, looking at how things work in the air travel industry and providing tips and advice for your next trip. Your host, Andrew, is here to answer your questions about flying and explore different aspects of the air travel experience to make you a better informed and better prepared traveler for your next flight. And welcome to episode 54 of Flying Smarter. My name is Andrew and I'm your host. In this episode, I'm going to start off by looking at why involuntary downgrades can happen and what you can do if you're subjected to one. And then for the main segment airline captain Doug Morris joins me to talk all about aviation weather. Now let's get started. Why would I get involuntarily downgraded and what should I do if it happens? Let's say that you've booked yourself on a business class or a first class ticket. And then at some point, either well before your flight, or at check-in, or at the gate, The airline tells you that they unfortunately have to involuntarily downgrade you and that you'll be sitting in economy class. Or maybe you get downgraded from first to business or business to premium economy, but in any case, they tell you that they don't have enough seats in the cabin that you're booked in and that you have to sit in a worse seat. Now maybe let's start with why this could happen. Firstly, many airlines will oversell their flights, and I've talked about overbooking before on this podcast so I don't want to get too much into it, but essentially, airlines know that statistically speaking, a certain number of people won't show up for a given flight, and some airlines will therefore sell more seats than there are on a plane as a result. This can sometimes result in more people showing up for a flight than there are seats available, and if nobody volunteers for another flight, the airline will start involuntarily bumping people. Now this doesn't affect premium cabins as much, but there are stories out there of overbooking resulting in involuntary downgrades. Other possibilities for being downgraded are more likely. For example, maybe there is an aircraft swap and the new plane that is operating your flight has less premium cabin seats than the old one. Or perhaps one or two of the business class seats are broken. The airline could also need premium cabin seats for crew members who are unexpectedly deadheading, which means that they're flying between cities for work but aren't actively on duty, and they have to be seated in a premium cabin for contractual reasons. These are all reasons that could lead the airline to end up having to involuntarily downgrade people. So what should you do if you've been told that you've been downgraded? Well first of all, keep in mind that the airline probably has some sort of policy or computer algorithm that decides who gets downgraded first and it's not really up to the employee standing in front of you. How the airline decides is typically something like this. Those who paid the most for their tickets and have the highest levels of status in the airline's loyalty program will be the safest from downgrading, while those who either redeemed points for their ticket or booked a lower class ticket and then paid for an upgrade using money or points are at the lower end of the priority list. If you still want the premium cabin experience that you originally booked in and have the flexibility to take a different flight, you can always ask to look at different options. Typically, if an airline has inconvenienced you, they'll be willing to help you out and have lots of flexibility when it comes to booking alternative options. But let's say that you don't have the flexibility to take a different flight and you're stuck on your original flight in a worse seat than you paid for. Your actual rights vary depending on where you are. In the United Kingdom, for example, Regulations require the airline to refund you 30, 50, or 75% of the price of the flight, on which you were downgraded depending on the length of the flight. The European Union has similar requirements for refunds ranging from 30 to 75% of the ticket price. In the United States and in some other parts of the world, there are no actual government regulations that cover involuntary downgrades, and it may not even be covered in the airline's contract of carriage. However, airlines will usually have their own policies to cover these situations and you can typically get a refund for the difference in money or points. There isn't much that you're entitled to beyond that unfortunately, but the airline may offer you additional compensation or perks as a gesture of goodwill. Some of the questions that I answer on the show are submitted by listeners, and you can send in a question to be featured as well. If you have a question that you would like me to answer on Flying Smarter, or if you have another idea for the podcast in general, you can reach out on social media or visit our website at flyingsmarter.com and go to the contact page. There you can record your question as an audio clip or submit it as a message. Did you know that there are two Air Force One jets? We're all familiar with the iconic Air Force One aircraft, but it's not as well known that there are actually two identical planes. Now technically, the term Air Force One refers to any aircraft that the President of the United States is on, so technically there's only ever one at a time, and it's not necessarily the two famous aircraft that we're thinking of, but when I'm talking here, I'm talking about the two jets that everyone around the world knows as Air Force One. Whenever the President travels, they take one of the aircraft, and the other is usually kept nearby as a backup or a spare in case there is a mechanical issue or some problem with the first aircraft. The main way that you can tell the difference between the two is that they have different numbers painted on the aircraft tails. Doug Morris is a Boeing 787 Dreamliner captain for Air Canada. He completed his initial training on Canada's east coast where weather plays a particularly significant role in flight operations. In his current role, he flies all over the world and is exposed to a wide variety of weather phenomena, ranging from space weather while transiting the North Pole, all the way to low visibility approaches flying into smog prone New Delhi, India. Furthermore, he's a certified meteorologist and worked as a weather forecaster for four years during his early pilot days. He's a longtime teacher of aviation weather to aspiring pilots and the author of four books. Longtime Air Canada flyers will recognize him as the author of the Aviation page in Air Canada's Enroute In Flight magazine for over two decades. That's how I've known about Doug for years, and it's therefore truly a pleasure to have him here. Doug, welcome. Thanks for joining me.
1: Hi, Andrew from Toronto. Thanks for having me, and I must commend you for opening up the world of
0: aviation. Thanks, Doug. No, you've been teaching aviation weather and educating travelers for for decades now. And I think there's a lot that can be talked about weather-wise. But I think a good place to start maybe is what you think the biggest misconception or misunderstanding about weather that travelers have.
1: There are a lot of misconceptions. Andrew, it takes about 55 to 60 departments. And if I try really hard, it probably, I can get the list up to about 80 departments to get an airline or airborne. And when you throw in weather, things get interesting. In fact, it's the number one question I get asked, why the bumps? Pastors want to know if and why their fl- flights will be bumpy. So a big misconception out there is there is no device per se that directly detects turbulence. Sure, there's a weather radar, but it only detects vertically developed cloud that contain rain showers, which are conducive to turbulence. There is research regarding systems using LIDAR, uh, it's light detection and ranging, but can only give a heads-up perhaps up to 60 seconds away, and it's still in the development stage. Uh, I noticed you previously interviewed a pilot regarding turbulence, and he did an excellent job explaining the bumps, so I won't steal away his uh, his thunder.
0: Yeah, and for the listeners, uh, that would have been uh, episode 8, Talking Turbulence with Owen Zup. Now, in the non-aviation world, uh, people love to joke about uh, the inaccuracies of the weather forecast. How accurate are aviation weather products? Well,
1: um... Being a meteorologist, I have a biased view. I think the weatherman does a great job. But pilots overall are somewhat cynical regarding weather forecasting. Having said that, they will admit how accurate upper winds and forecasts and temperatures are. We can fly a 14 to 16-hour flight and our ETA is within minutes. And our fuel burns are within 100 to 200 kilograms because of the weatherman's accuracy. I always joke to my flying partner: No one ever remembers when the weatherman is right.
0: Right, I feel like it's always people always talk about when it's wrong, but it's like you know, credit isn't given where credit is due, right? Absolutely,
1: I agree. Again, <laughs> it's one I'm of biased. those things. Like,
0: fair, fair enough. But <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think there's some truth in that too, right? Even in the in the civilian world, right? people are upset when the weather when the forecast is wrong, yeah. but when it's right, no one ever says anything because it's right, right?
1: Exactly.
0: Yeah, that's exactly it. Yeah. Now, moving on, your airline and uh, on your aircraft specifically, you fly all over the world. So when you're flying internationally, do you find that the weather products are consistent uh, around the globe uh, and across jurisdictions? Yes
1: and no. For example, for international flying, there are only two forecast centers in the world that forecast high altitude weather above 25,000 feet. They're located in London, England, and the USA. For the USA uh, weather charts, they stamped them Washington, D.C., but truth be told, the forecast uh, products are made in uh, Kansas City, Missouri. Every country has their own inherent intricacies when it comes to weather dissemination and products. Sometimes my flying partner will look over and ask a question. Many won't admit they don't understand the code. There are 123 aviation centers in the United States, but only two in Canada. Plus, we have a hodgepodge on units. Visibility is in feet and miles here in North America, but meters and kilometers around the world.
0: Yeah, now that we've talked a little about the weather products themselves, mm-hmm. I'm hoping that you can tell me a bit more about how the weather actually affects flight planning.
1: Weather is a huge factor in flight planning, obviously. Uh, wind dictates take routing, the runway in use. If there's a clump of thunderstorms, we'll have to fly around them. This means extra fuel and a longer flight. We may have to stay at lower altitudes to find smooth air or dodge a fast-flowing jet stream. Politics has been a big player as well lately. We no longer have the luxury of flying over the North Pole to uh, Asian airports.
0: Yeah, so that's that's resulted in some increased flight times, and for some airlines, even even some stops. Right. So when I mean, I'm sure on the seven eighty seven Dreamliner routes, right? Yeah, that's that's a, yeah. that's a big one, right? Okay, and then so now, I mean, there's obviously flight planning, but then we all know weather changes, right? So when you're flying along mm-hmm. and there's uh, changes in weather, uh, how do you as pilots sort of tackle that?
1: Many envision a pilot sitting there at cruising altitude in a very relaxed, relaxed state. I must admit, this happens frequently. However, we are looking at the weather radar if we suspect thunderstorm activity. We're getting ride reports from dispatch and other airplanes and air traffic control if the bumps start. So we're always trying to guarantee a smooth ride for our passengers.
0: And uh, I know you mentioned reps earlier or uh, reports from other pilots, uh, and uh, I understand that those uh, get used uh, often on long-haul flights, particularly over o- big open spaces. Uh, is that correct?
1: That's right. Uh, we have a data link system, so a flight dispatcher might get a, a report from a, one of our other flights or another airline, and he will data link that report to us in the flight deck. It's sort of like a uh, text messaging,
0: right? And I don't remember if it was when I was reading or looking at content that you provided or another pi- pilot had talked about earlier. But I understand that Air Canada some pilots have access to Wi-Fi now too from the cabin Wi-Fi. Is that correct?
1: Uh, we do have access to the cabin Wi-Fi. Uh, there's been a little bit of problems with it. The Wi-Fi doesn't really like to penetrate that flight like that door too well. Okay. <laughs> but we do get it uh, one or two uh, bars and. Uh, Yeah, now we can uh, monitor the weather on a continual basis, which is fantastic.
0: Yeah, exactly. And, I mean, it's great for passengers, but the fact that you guys can use it too as opposed to the more traditional methods, that's... uh, That's right, right. yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, Okay, now I I think it's fair that... um, there's certain weather phenomena that make passengers nervous, right? Like low visibility. We talked about turbulence earlier. You said that's probably number one, and you know we had a whole episode on it because it's number one. And those types of things make passengers, uh, you know, some people make them a little anxious, some people are quite scared, some people just a little little nervous, mm-hmm. right? But I'm curious about what type of weather situations or phenomena uh, put pilots in that situation. Are there things that make you nervous or are things that uh, concern you?
1: By far, number one on the list are thunderstorms. I don't like thunderstorms. And I don't trust any pilot that does like a thunderstorm. Okay. <laughs> it's avoid, avoid, avoid. As we speak, there are about 2,000 thunderstorms booming around the world. There can be up to 20,000 to 24,000 thunderstorms a day. But we also have to contend with de-icing, turbulence, slippery runways, low visibility, jet streams, in-flight icing. The uh, meteorological list is long.
0: Yeah. And speaking of that list, uh, I was hoping that you could tell me a bit about a few specific weather phenomena and their impact on aviation. Uh, and I was originally going to try to call it a rapid fire lightning round. But then I realized <laughs> that that a some of the answers might not be that short and b lightnings on the list. So I thought that, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm not trying to be clever or anything. But anyway, um, okay, so maybe you talked about thunderstorms already. So tell me about thunderstorms yeah. and why they're so scary.
1: Well, uh, well, why are they so scary? Um, well, they come with, they pack a punch, uh, they come with severe turbulence, extremely heavy rain, low-level wind shear, severe icing. They should scare any pilot, and they do. Uh, lightning has a huge impact on airport operations. Many airports have uh, lightning detectors, and if the strikes are within three to five miles of the airport, the airport will go into a lightning advisory. It used to be called a red alert, but we had to change that because a lot of people thought a red alert meant another (laughs) 9-11. So we had it downgraded to lightning advisory. Passengers sometimes challenge us as they see patches of blue sky and void of weather, and they still want to know why the airport's in a red alert. It's because that device or system is detecting lightning. And uh, all the ground crew have to scurry away. They have to seek shelter, and uh, it can be... Minutes up to a, a couple hours before the lightning uh, advisory goes away.
0: And then we also hear stories about uh, planes that get hit by lightning. Can you tell me about that?
1: Uh, yeah, a lot of people see these uh, B-rated movies made by Hollywoods, so, you know, with uh, an airplane flying through a thunderstorm cloud and getting hit by lightning. But lightning, believe it or not, is the least threatening characteristics of a thunderstorm because lightning generally... Strikes the airplane, it enters the airplane and then exits the airplane without leaving damage. Sometimes, yes, uh, there might be a small little pinholes left, but when, if we are hit by lightning, uh, maintenance will go over the airplane with a fine tooth comb and uh, give it us a green card of health.
0: And like like we just talked about, we know it happens, but if the idea is to be avoiding thunderstorms, how do you end up in a situation where you get hit by lightning? Is it that you inevitably have to be there or does it tend to be people who are aircraft that end up in um, not ideal situations?
1: It, it, Andrew, all of the above. Uh, we're Sometimes we have to get kind of close to thunderstorms. It's inevitable, especially you know on the approach area to a, a, an airport. And because of it, we're in close proximity to the thunderstorm, and uh, that's when uh, the lightning may occur.
0: Now, the next sort of extreme weather phenomenon that I want to ask you about was extreme temperatures. So that's uh, both on the hot end and then on the extreme cold end as well.
1: Uh, yeah, uh, For if you go on the cold end, uh, for example, engines must be preheated uh, when the temperature is minus 40 degrees Celsius or less. So that's a big concern. Uh, when things get cold, things slow up. Uh, there's concern for the workers working in extreme cold, there is a uh, water freezing issues on the airplane Well, you remember all the the water system in an airplane could freeze and uh, that could be catastrophic in the morning. So we have to either run heaters or the APU, the auxiliary power unit all night to keep the, uh, the water above freezing. And then there's the, uh, looking for cabin heaters, and then there's the frost forming on the wings. And then uh, you know the book offs tend to happen too in co- extreme cold temperatures and snowstorms. Uh, you don't you you might be operating in a skeleton crew, so uh, it, it's a challenge in the cold uh, in the cold extreme.
0: Yeah, and that's a big one here in Canada for sure. But uh, I'm curious, what about on the other end uh, in extreme hot temperatures? Because I imagine you fly to some places where the temperatures on the other end where it gets extremely hot.
1: Oh, absolutely. In New Delhi, I've been to Arizona. But you know what? It still gets pretty hot in the bellies of an airplane in Toronto. They could be over 110 degrees Fahrenheit. So there's concern about the workers when they're loading bags underneath the uh, the belly. Uh, again, uh, the engines have to be uh, treated differently. Uh, yeah, so even the hot temperatures. And then also uh, when with hot temperatures come along, um, challenging uh, to get airborne. For example, I was years ago in New Delhi where the temperature was 31 degrees Celsius, but we couldn't technically take off in New Delhi until the temperature went to 30 degrees Celsius, just because uh, we needed cooler, denser air. And that's why many Mideast airlines operate in the wee hours of the morning because uh, the air is the coolest.
0: And that's because cooler air is more dense, right?
1: Correct. Exactly. So it's all about density, altitude, and calculations, and takeoff calculations, and speeds. It, there's quite a bit of mathematics involved.
0: And now, do, do you have to do that math, or is there uh, are there are there systems in place for that?
1: We have a data link, and we just input the da- numbers, and out come some numbers that are churned away by. People are a lot smarter than I. <laughs>
0: there you go. Fair <laughs> enough. Now, next one uh, is uh, low visibility. What about, uh, uh, is that something that uh, that we should be concerned about? And what type of impact does that have?
1: Well, most airliners are capable of auto land. So low visibility uh, usually is not a challenge. Uh, although the airport has to be certified to uh, bring us down to a low altitude, the pilots have to be certified and the airplane has to be certified. So uh, generally speaking though, most airports in Canada and the United States can bring us down pretty close to the ground and around Europe. And uh, brought out the heavy artillery of the Autoland several times, but uh, yeah, um, low visibility is a challenge, but there's procedures in place and and uh, usually we'll get into the airport.
0: And by Autoland, you mean the plane can literally land itself all the way to the ground?
1: Correct. All you do is wait for the bump.
0: And then can you tell us maybe uh, if Autoland sort of that in those unusual circumstances, what what does it look like uh, normally? Like you do use uh, like an instrument uh, sort of approach or do you do you like find themselves or is I I mean, I know it depends on company policy and all that, too. But uh, if Autoland is out of the norm, then I was wondering if you could tell us what the norm is. Uh,
1: So the norm The normal landing, uh, our favorite landing for most pilots is the ILS, the instrument landing system. And that'll bring us down to about 200 feet above the airport. Now, we want to go further closer to the runway. uh, We start using the radial altimeter, and that's a category two approach and brings us down to about 100 feet. Then if we bring out the the heavy hitter, the autoland, basically we tell the airport or the airplane to fly as to the ground and the, the auto land system will flare. It'll uh, reduce my thrust and I'll even apply auto brakes to, uh, almost a near zero visibility. And again, the pilot has to be certified and it's when it gets that low, it's always the captain, that flies that approach, the airport has to be certified and of course the airplane itself. So that's the auto land
0: procedures. Does that happen often?
1: Uh, you know, not as often as you think, uh, for one thing, we pilots love to land manually. We, we want to stroke our ego, so we always want to land manually. But of course, if the if, if visibility is low, then we have to let the airplane fly us to, to the runway.
0: And now to the last sort of weather uh, phenomenon that I want to ask you about. Can you tell us about winds uh, and how, uh, how, how that impacts aviation and flight planning?
1: Winds dictate the runway use. They may be a challenge if visibility is low, but there is no if there is no instrument approach. So sometimes, um, if the winds are strong, uh, we're, we're going to have to contend with a crosswind landing, uh, crosswind takeoffs, and then winds aloft. A lot of people don't realize how strong winds aloft are. They can be up to two hundred to two hundred fifty miles an hour. It's called a jet stream. Uh, so we try to ride that way or that uh, jet stream or we try to avoid it uh, to, you know, uh, get a good ETA.
0: Doug Morris is a Boeing 787 captain at Air Canada. As a certified meteorologist, he's taught new pilots about aviation weather for years, and he's written for Air Canada's On Roof Flight magazine for over two decades as well. Doug is the author of four books, including his latest, titled This Is Your Captain Speaking. The book draws from his extensive experiences and goes through the A to Z of airline travel with a bit of humor, covering things ranging from whether airliners have keys, to what aircrew get up to on layovers, to how to become a pilot. And of course, we'll have links to where you can find Doug's books, his blog, and his social media down below in the episode description. Well, on behalf of both myself and all our listeners, thank you so much for being here, Doug. I really appreciate you taking the time.
1: Andrew, it was a pleasure, and you asked some great questions.
0: Please take a minute and follow us on social media, where you'll find things like podcast updates, additional content, visuals of things we talk about, and sneak peeks. It's also a great place to reach out to me to chat, or if you have thoughts or feedback about the podcast. Flying Smarter is on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn at Flying Smarter, and on Twitter at Flying underscore Smarter. That brings us to the end of episode 54 of Flying Smarter. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll talk to you again soon.